Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is a little bit different. So we have Dave Munson, who is the founder of Saddleback Leather. Dave and his Black Lab Blue started Saddleback Leather living in Juarez, Mexico, sleeping on the floor of a $100 apartment with no hot water for three years. He fought a bull in a Mexican bullfight and had a federale sent to kill him while trying to get the company going. In 2006, he met his wife on MySpace, and in 2008, they started a leather factory in central Mexico. They currently live in a 2,000 square feet of safari tent outside of Fort Worth, Texas, with their two kids and three labs. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Well, it's a pleasure to be on here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And I will say, I am a prior owner of a Saddleback leather wallet. And I say prior because I lost it. And I think that's the literally the only way that you can part with a Saddleback leather product because they're just so well-made. You know, that's the intention. We have a hundred year warranty and uh, our slogan is they'll fight over it when you're dead. Uh, but that's the idea that you'll just have it forever until you're dead and then yeah. someone else gets it. Yeah, and that wallet was incredible. I mean, it, 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 they conformed to your basically well my backside because that's where it was in my back pocket, and um, just you know they just it smells like leather. It just is heavy, and you can just tell the care that went into designing and building it. Yeah, you know, I I, I only build stuff and or I design it now. Um, I don't make them, but I design things that I think are cool or that uh-huh. I would. To, to use. So like an Apple watch band, um, I don't make those people are like, Oh, come on, make an Apple watch band. But I don't want a distracting little computer on my wrist. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. So I said, no, I don't want to. And so the wallets, the ones we do have are, um, you know, we launch some and then we get rid of them, but we launch other ones and those outsell those and people like them more. And then we take the the lesser lower selling ones down even if some people love them and then we put new ones up and kind of leapfrogging so uh-huh. uh the ones we have now pretty sweet uh-huh. i will have to take a look um let's talk about you just mentioned a couple of things about your brand you mentioned the hundred year warranty the the phrase you know, the fight over it when you're dead um you have a very, you're a higher priced in the marketplace and you sell a premium product. How have you gone? And I, I know there's, I've seen a lot of your branding. How have you built that aspect of, you may be that high price, but you can sell it because people know of that quality. Yeah. So uh, it's really important to educate people. Um, I was just talking to the, uh, I had breakfast with uh, one of the uh, tannery owner that we uh-huh. deal with a lot. And he said, how, how'd you do it? Same question. How'd you do it? 
I said, educate people on, on the quality, like your oils. You buy a cheap oil from India for $10, or you could buy a, um, an expensive one for $100. So which one do you use? And what, what happens when you use those cheaper ones or those more expensive ones? And, um, and so educate, educate, educate. People love to be educated. And when you educate them, they say, well, I feel like I can trust them. Uh. because because of that and so it's kind of like a reciprocation thing if you give them um if you give them something then they can then they kind of want to repay the favor by supporting you or talking about you or um referring you to a you know for a friend to, uh -huh. it, it's really important to um to educate people on quality yeah how did you come up with that slogan Oh yeah. So when I had my first bag made, I was thinking, oh yeah, I want to be, I was 28 and I was like, Hey, I want to be this grandfather. And I want everyone want all the grandkids wanting my bag. And, and I, then when I die, they're going to be all, you know, like fighting over it. And, and uh, that was kind of my dream because, mm. you know, my grandfather, my, my grandma's dad gave her a pocket knife and she said, Dave, you're the oldest Munson in the family, so you get grandfather's pocket knife. He, mm. he used this when I was a little girl. I always remember with this pocket knife, and here, it's yours. And I thought, oh, that is so cool. And then I thought, what am I going to hand down? Mm. And I wanted to hand something down. So I went to, I was going to go to Switzerland. I was in Austria in 2005, and I had $3,000. I was going to buy the nicest pocket watch I could find. And for $3,000 and I, the train tracks washed out. I couldn't go. Mm. So, but I wanted to hand down something. And what I realized was the bag that I had on my shoulder was that, was that bag, uh -huh. that, that thing I was going to hand down. And so I just started um, making them more durable and longer lasting and um, yeah, changed the hardware to indestructible and um yeah, just really, really, really the toughest leather I could buy and the toughest lining that that's available and the toughest thread there is and reinforced everything. And here we go. Mm -hmm. Now, you've done some really innovative uh, like commercials and, and just promote promo. I mean, like you have one where you've got like an alligator, I think, fighting your bag and you've got one where you've put an engine in one of your bag and the engine is being supported by that. Talk a little bit about, you know, how did those come to be? I, so, so we, <laughs> I think, hey, if I would like to see this from someone else, then it seems like other people would like it too. Mm. And just little tests here and there and little, um, we were in the, on an island between Rwanda and the Congo, uh, I don't know, six months ago or something. And I did, I had this new backpack and I was, we were looking and it's called Bat Island. And it, okay. has, it has these, has thousands, tens of thousands of these giant fruit bats. And so I was going through the bush, going through the jungle and like, and, and the, my camera guy was following me and, and I was going to describe the backpack and show everyone what it is, but in a cool place. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it just seems like people like that kind of thing. And it's kind of fun. It adds in, uh, it just makes people smile. 
So when I think of things that'll make me smile, then I think, well, if other people smile too, and I can show it to them instead of, you know, at a table, I can show it to Mm -hmm. them on that island or walking with lions or with Maasai throwing spears or in Croatia or, you know, then it's a lot more fun that way. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So it's looking at kind of like what what you feel like makes you excited about and how you can show off the, how the difference of your product. Yeah. So I, I explain why I designed it certain ways, all of the features and what, what I was thinking about when I was designing it mm-hmm. I go into detail with those. And people seem to really appreciate that. And I go into the, you know, the leather, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and full grain, not anything else. And and why and how that works. I try and explain it like I would to a seven-year-old. And if you can do that, then that means you really understand it. And so people seem to, lawyers and all kinds of people seem to really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're buying it. That's what, that's an important part. Yep. Let's talk about your, um, your journey with the business. You started in, um, well, you started back in Juarez. Uh, how many years had you been running your business before you met your wife? I was officially regularly selling bags from 2003 okay. until, until uh, 2006 when we met in, um, yeah, on MySpace. And so, yeah, it was uh, about three years. And then I, I had sold some before in 2002. And I had sold some in 2000. Uh, just a few, though. And, uh, but yeah, that was, that's pretty much when it started. Mm -hmm. And then you opened the leather factory. Was that because you couldn't get the, the capacity that you wanted just from purchasing from the smaller merchants or tell us about the story behind the the factory? No, everyone kept stealing from me. Okay. So, So, um, and so, and the, the quality wasn't where it needed to be. And so they would, I would order a certain, you know, leather and they would, they would buy it cheaper somewhere else from a cheaper tannery tanned with cheaper, you know, pigments and oils. And, and I wasn't getting the quality that I needed and they were skimping on things and pieces were crooked and they just didn't care. Mm. So nobody ever cares about as much as about your stuff as you do. Uh And so, and so if you can find somebody who does, then you've really found something cool. And so, and they were stealing from me and selling my leather and I don't know where it went. And it was just kind of, it was just stupid. And so I couldn't get the quality and and they were stealing. So I started my own factory so that my own employees could steal from me. Okay. (laughs) It was super lame. Um, And so it's happened a couple of times, one American, uh, one Dutch guy who were helping me. Uh, Yeah. But Hey, you know what? You learn from it and you gain, you grow in wisdom when those things happen. And, you know, I was praying for wisdom and, um, and God said, okay, you might want to bite on this piece of leather because he may swallow your tongue. <laughs> it's gonna yeah. hurt. Um, so when you pray for patience or wisdom, um, that comes through struggle. It comes through difficult times usually. And, um, but that's what I've been praying for. And so, uh, yeah, I got it. Oh, I got some. Uh-huh. I got some. I'm not the wisest man on earth, but like you definitely gain in, in your area when you go through struggle. Uh-huh. Talk to us about, you know, working with a bilingual team. 
Yeah, you know what? Most people here, um, I'm in Mexico right now. Most people here do speak English. Anyone usually college graduate usually okay. speaks English. And uh, so it's pretty easy. And I speak Spanish. Uh -huh. uh, I lived in Mexico for so long, about seven years. And so um, I speak Spanish. And so I, we just have conversations in that. If they're struggling or if it's really important conversation, then I speak Spanish to them. If I'm, uh, sometimes I'll force them to speak uh, uh, English, like our IT director. Uh -huh. he, he knows all the words, but he, his tongue is not loosened up yet. So I'm, I force him to speak English with me. Uh -huh. Gotcha. But generally, it's pretty, generally it's pretty easy. You do miss a few things uh, in, in the translation, but uh, generally they get everything. Mm -hmm. And so do you just try to make sure you clarify that they understood that or how do you get those pieces that they, they might miss? Yeah. So this is, this is my favorite question. I'll say, no, it's not my favorite, but it's, it's a good one. Um, so could you repeat back to me what we just talked about? Because I want to make sure that I communicated it in a way that, mm -hmm. that was easy to understand. Cause sometimes, you know, I don't communicate very well. I put it on me and then mm -hmm. they'll say, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll say, I've even had it in the U.S. where they go, okay, okay, what'd you say? Like after, oh, like wow. after talking for like yeah. five minutes on the phone, uh -huh. they were typing and doing other projects and just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and then I said, could you repeat back to me what we just talked about? Because, and it's amazing how many people, and so that really helps. They know that I'm going to ask that. And then I confirm it. And could you, I say, could you confirm what we just talked about in an email? Mm. And that's really important. And then I'll go, okay, just to make sure you said this, right? Uh-huh. So I'll say close. So that really helps. Um, also, uh, when it shows up wrong or different, you say, uh, they say, um, you, you have that email. They'll go, it wasn't my fault. You didn't tell me to do it. I go, oh yeah, we did. So uh, that's really important to confirm everything in an email, even in the US. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Could you please confirm what we just talked about? I love and that. That's so important. Yeah, absolutely. That's really great. I appreciate that. Let's keep diving into team because um, I think that's the number one challenge, especially now that people are facing with building the good team and keeping good people and just building that culture. Um, how do you, how is your team set up? Because I know you've, you've grown a, a pretty large business now. Like how many layers are there? Oh, this is great. I'm so glad you're asking that question. So um, I had a CEO coach named Larry Briggs. Okay. out of Portland, Oregon. He was in his 60s then. I think he's like 70 something now. And he coached hospital systems and all these things. But I, I had him in 2013 coach me for about a year and a half. We met all the time on the phone and everything. And he said, Dave, you really want a flat organization. You don't want a pyramid where you have uh -huh. the, the president and then you have the, the CEO and then underneath them is like the general manager and then you have directors and then you have, you know, on and on and on. He said, he said, it should be you. And then you have, so what that's the way it is now. We have um, at Saddleback, we have me, uh -huh. and then we have our IT uh -huh. uh, person. And then we have um, who reports to me, but really they, their team re reports to each other. 
And then we have our marketing director. We have our warehouse fulfillment uh, director who also works with product development. And then we have uh, a customer service manager. Um, and those, the IT, the IT uh, purchasing reports to her, um, everyone has their direct reports, but those like five people, uh, those are, uh, when there's a decision that needs to be made, they get together and they discuss it and then they come up with a solution. So as, so what I do in my job as the leader is to ask great questions mm -hmm. or so they'll go, man, Dave, uh, the, this company wants us to, to do some ad spend there, but I don't know, like we don't do ad spend. Uh, what do you think, Dave? What should, should we do it? And I'll say, man, that's a great question. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Mm. And so I ask them, and, uh, and that's what Larry did with me for a year and a half. I said, Larry, this is happening. That's happening. This is not happening. What do I do? He'd go, that's a great question, Dave. And he'd act all consternated. And he'd yeah. say, he would say, I don't know. What do you think? And I go, well, I think we should do a number one and number two and then do A and C. And he would say, oh, man, that sounds like a great idea. That's, that's good thinking, Dave. I like the way you're thinking about that. Have you considered uh -huh. maybe throwing in a, a, a D also? Uh -huh. and, and I go, man, I hadn't thought of that. But asking them because they know the work probably better than you do. And if they... Know it 70% as good as, if they can do it 70% as well as you can, then let them at it. Let them do it. Uh -huh. But if you don't want to be on top of everything, let them make mistakes. And they're even better than they were before. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. A follow-up on that. That's great. I've got that actually sketched out here. Um, uh, how do you build trust? Because for people to be able to throw all those ideas out there and feel safe, you got to have a great level of tr trust. If it's a really expensive idea, yeah, we need to talk about it. But they'll they'll go, they'll try something, and if they mess up or lose money, I'll go. You know what? This reminds me of the time that I lost a bunch of money. You know, uh -huh. yeah. But I bet you'll never do that again. And they'll go, yeah, I'm so sorry. That was a terrible thing. And you go, you know what? No big deal. I'm glad we tried. And so, um, and so just letting them know that we try and try and try and try. And the more we try the, some things don't work. Our, our, we do a lot of videos. And so our first viral video was number 223 of all of our videos. Really? Yeah. But you, in order to get to 223, you have to do 222 other videos. Yes. And so some will get like 300 views and everyone's upset at me for something because I offended people or something stupid. And, or I did, I said something stupid. I'm like, Oh no, my wife's like, Dave, you said that. Oh no, that's terrible. You know? And, um, but you, the way you get good at playing guitar is by playing guitar. And the way you get good at taking pictures is by taking pictures and public speaking by public speaking and marketing by doing marketing things. Uh -huh. So like we, I give them constraints. So I say, 
uh, you can't spend any money on marketing. Okay. Huh? What do you mean you can't spend any money? They have AdWords, Google AdWords and Facebook ads and Instagram ads. And why not? You know, because that's the easy button. I want you to work hard and figure out how to make us money and bring people into the website without doing ads. Uh -huh. And they're like, oh, are you sure? I'm positive. And so we get really cool marketing because of that because I don't allow us to pay for ads. Um, warehouse. We moved into a smaller warehouse because we were using up too much space. And I said, hey, we're moving into from 37,000 square feet to 8,200 square feet. And so wait a minute. You cut three quarters of your warehouse in space. Well, a lot of that was um, offices too. And now most okay. people work from home, but we work together in the in the place, but yeah, we had too much space and it was becoming really wasteful. And we would say, well, what do we do with these, this, this group of bags that has been returned or a different color? And they say, ah, they, we used to say, I'll oh, just put it on the shelf. We'll figure it out later. And ah. then we ended up with more and more and more stuff and not being able to control our inventory very well. And, and now we're saving so much money by moving into this small space. And I forced them to. And uh -huh. I said, you have to make the racks without having a bunch of extra space in there. Uh -huh. And you've got to do this. And we're going to keep more just-in-time inventory where we only make it when we need it. Well, but how do we do that? we got to figure that out at the factory. That's how. Uh -huh. and, and they've got to figure out how to make it, make 20 pieces efficiently. Instead of making 200 pieces, and that's just money sitting on the shelf. So anyway, stuff like that. So you give them constraints and they're like, we can't do it. We can't do it. You go, oh, sure you can. You're smart. Uh -huh. Figure it out. And then they innovate. You force them to innovate and they come up with really good marketing ideas. And, and we start saving money on boxes because they're too big and there's too much air in there. And we start saving money on all these things and we adjust the racks and we come up with new ways of doing things. Uh -huh. So. And then they feel great about it because they figured it out, um, and we're and they're they're saved us money and um, and we have a lot of great success and it's just really cool. Uh huh. Uh huh. What do you do? You have ever have a team, or was ever a point where your team felt like they were doing too much or overworked? And what kind of was the? How did you handle that? No, I don't think so. Um, I, I ask them not to send emails at night. Okay. Um, if it's like an emergency or something, <clears throat> I'll hop on and, uh, and oh, I for keep forgetting to tell them this. And then I'll go send an email real quick. But that's not very common. And so uh -huh. I don't want them, I want them turning off because when you take a break and you rest, you do better work. Because uh -huh. when, you're, when your mind is resting and thinking about other things, it's, it's actually solving problems. And so you end up doing better work. And I think a lot of the best work ever done in history was before computers. And uh -huh. I mean, there's some pretty amazing people did stuff before smartphones. Yeah. You look at some of the bridges that were designed back before computers and it's blown, blown me away. And just the way they talk and the Lincoln's Lincoln Douglas debates that were like seven hours or something like that. Uh -huh. no I mean, the way they thought 
it was amazing. And so I, I, I've, uh, I really, I, I encourage people. Now there are seasons. I tell them, listen, there's a, a month or two where it's coming up on Christmas. We're doing all these campaigns. We have to work 50 hours, guys. Come on, seriously. We have, let's put some extra time and stay late. Uh-huh. But if it goes longer than that, then something's wrong with me. Then yeah. I'm, then I'm a, then I can't delegate or they can't delegate, or they can't say no. Uh-huh. And that's a problem. You only got one chance to raise your kids. And I don't want, uh, and they are who they are. And by the time they're seven years old, they're, they've already determined how valuable they are to this world, what their worth is, their self-worth, what their self-image or self-esteem, what level it should be at. And it happens when you spend T-I-M-E with your kids. Uh-huh. And so, but if we want everyone to praise us for what a great worker we are and how powerful we are and how dominant, and we never unplug, dude's a machine, you know, that just makes us, ourself feel good while the self of our children and the self of our spouse is suffering. And so we choose ourself over their self. And that's called pride. Uh-huh. And that's, damaging so so you know what yeah i heard in germany that there are some places that give a five-hour workday because they say you're only really functional really highly productive for the first five hours and after that you're not really you're just kind of burning some time and so if you know you have a deadline like in college if i knew i had a paper due in three weeks i never worked on it or I, yeah. would do, I would do 15 hours of research and all that sort of thing. But if I knew I had a paper due tomorrow, I'd get it done in six hours. Yeah. Instead of, instead of 15 hours of research and 10 hours of writing. So people usually squeeze things in. They don't waste time when they have a limited amount of time. So giving each other deadlines really helps. Yeah. So now with your production, your factory, though, I'm assuming you've got like set expectations, like how long a specific bag should take to make, how many hours should go into that, correct? I mean, do you have like a standard procedures or operating systems? Yeah, yep, yep. So we know generally um, right now um, how long a bag, bag should make. We've um, Toyota has the Toyota production system, mm-hmm. and this works with everything there's a book called the goal yeah by elihu goldratt yes and actually i'm listening to it again i read it the first time now i'm listening to the audio version like mr goldratt can i speak mr <laughs> it's kind of cool and uh but it's it's this is useful the the goal is useful in every industry in um repairing tanks and helicopters to uh, paper supply to all this sort of thing to get way more done with the same amount of people, way more done. So we're, we do that. And so it's continually improving and uh, you find that, yeah, it's kind of a, a longer thing, but man, farming and all of that, you can oh, yeah. save a ton of time and, and money by, and get more done with the same amount of effort. You just have to th- think about it better. Yeah, I think the goal to me takes the E-Myth to the next level and takes some of these other systems, well, like, like Six Sigma to that next level. Um, 
And uh, it was, yeah, I, I only unfortunately discovered it, you know, the last year that we were farming in New York. So year like nine of the business. And when I saw, when I read that book, it was just completely eye-opening for how we ran things. Yeah. So, so also um, you can tell the humble person in a room because they have their hand raised saying, Hey, uh, I need some help here. Can someone uh -huh. tell me how to do this better? Um, a prideful person says, I don't need any help. I can figure it out. And uh -huh. yeah, there's a part of that. We want to just solve problems and figure things out. But when, when you think you've got it pretty good, ask for advice, bring in a consultant, say, Hey, look at my business. And what could I do better? You've done this for a while. And that's, I'm sure, I'm assuming that's what they do with you. Uh -huh. That's why they listen to you. And so, but that's what humble people do. And um, humble people are the most successful. Uh -huh. and, and because they ask for help, what can I do to help? Or what can I do to get better? And uh, I, I had the, some Toyota, former Toyota engineers in the factory several years ago. And they said, I said, we need to start hiring to get ready for Christmas to for the Christmas uh, inventory and the manufacturing. And he said, no, 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 no. Don't hire anyone. He said, you can, with the people you have, you should be able to get triple the production. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, easy. Triple, triple, at least triple the production. And I was like, yeah, well, that's why I hired you. So show me. Okay. <laughs> and so... Seriously, one of the spots, we had seven duffel bags a day with like I don't know, five or six people. And we got up to 24 duffel bags. Wow. And they weren't sweating. They weren't running around. They weren't. And the quality was there. They just helped them to balance the line. Okay. <clears throat> so and no so one, it was really cool. Hey, Thriving Farmers, do you need a quick win on your farm? Have you struggled to find the right soil amendments that maximize your fruit or vegetable production? In December of 2020, I was introduced to AgriGrow and their prebiotic formulas. I was skeptical at first, but this past season, I boosted my strawberry yields by 18% with an AgriGrow product called Ultra. What does an 18% yield increase look like in dollars? My $6 in product investment returned me $868 worth of marketable strawberries on just three rows. This is the kind of ROI that we need as small scale producers. Ultra is an OMRI listed soil prebiotic technology that has been proven to increase yields and develop soils. To find out more or to order, go to smallfarm.solutions. AgriGrow is offering a 10% discount to all thriving farmer listeners. Simply use the coupon code THRIVE when you check out. Again, that is T-H-R-I-V-E for 10% off discount on your first order. So, all right. So that, I, I want to dive in a little bit there. What were the, obviously there's probably a lot of things they did, but what were like one of the two top things that they did to help that balance and to increase that productivity? Okay. So giving people like well, what you said earlier, how many bags to make. So um, how many, how long should it take to do a certain amount of, of, of something? And we say, yeah, it should be like know, seven. We, we should be able to do 10 an hour. Okay. okay so one every six minutes. So then they would put a board there and you give people goals. And if you don't have a goal and that's with finishing the bags or with, uh, you know, rubbing them down or you should be able to package uh, one wallet per minute. Okay. You know, and rubbed down and packaged and taped and put into the box. And if that's their goal, then 
well, what or let's say 10 bags an hour uh, with a line of you know small bag or something. And so we'll have a board there and it has the nine hours. Here in Mexico, it's a 48 hour work week. Okay. So have nine squares, hour one, two, three, four. And they'll have a, like a diagonal line across it, across the square. And we'll put um, on the bottom of the, of the square, the bottom triangle, we'll say 10. And we put 10 all the way across. And then the, after the first hour, they go, right, how many they got done? They got nine, nine out of 10. And they uh -huh. go, oh, crap, we're a little behind. And so then they'll go, let's, 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 we, hey, we got to, you know, whatever. They'll do nine out of 10 again. They go, oh, no, we're, we got we to gotta do this better. Then they'll do 11 the next hour. And then someone's like, I go get a bathroom. And then the, the supervisor sits down in his spot and works on it while he goes to the bathroom. And then they get 11 again. Mm. Now they're on track. And yeah. but you have to have the goals. If you just say, here, make some bags, they go, okay. And you get seven or six or five. People are telling jokes. Yeah. People are casually walking to the bathroom. People are casually walking back and forth. Um, so that's a big deal. Uh, giving people goals. Uh, how many of these can you do an hour? Or how long does it take to, to rub down one of these bags? How long does it take to do this? And they tell you, you give them, and then pretty soon you find out they're doing 12 an hour. Mm -hmm. You do that for a couple of weeks and you go, anyway, so there was that one. The big one was the bottlenecks. So if you say, what's taking the longest? Say you have five people and five people sitting around a table and they're making things, making one thing. And you go, and everyone can do 20, do their part, they can do 20 pieces an hour. But one person, he's got the sewing machine, he has the hard part, he can only do 10 an hour. So that means of those five people, they can only ever do 10 an hour. Mm -hmm. That one sewing machine, it, no matter how hard the guy is, he works or how good he is, he can only do 10 an hour. And so sometimes we'll add a person on, another machine there who can do 10, and now the machine, you added one person and you just doubled your output. Uh-huh. Yep. And so, or we say, well, brain surgery, blood pressure, brain surgery, blood pressure. You go, okay. So the brain surgeon, he doesn't check the people in, take the blood pressure, get their insurance number, uh, you know, have them fill out the paperwork. His, he's just a brain surgeon. That's what he does. Mm -hmm. He doesn't wheel them off to the host, to the, to the room and change their gauze and all of that sort of thing. He just operates and that's it. And so you look at the, the, the main thing um, and you, you say that our, our, our sewer, one of our stitchers, um, it's a really hard machine. It finishes off the whole bag and they finish. They have to rethread a bobbin underneath. They pull the bobbin out, runs out of thread. Well, if they spend a couple of minutes doing that, rethreading the bobbin, and then they're cutting the thread and they're burning the thread with a lighter to make it ball up so it doesn't mm -hmm. unravel. And then they're walking over and handed this stuff. No, all their, their job is just to sew. When that needle's going up and down, that's when you're making money. Mm -hmm. And so you try and keep that needle going up and down 85% um, of the day. And so when that, when that guy goes on break, a floater comes and he sits down at that machine and he's, he starts sewing. And then when the guy comes back from the break, 
he sits down and starts sewing. Someone else threads his bobbins for him and he has three bobbins sitting there all threaded. And someone else is burning, they're taking the blood pressure. They're burning threads, they're packaging, they're bringing new bags to him. Um, and, and they do all of the menial things. And you have the highly qualified stitcher. All he does is stitch. Mm. So, so like in the circle, out of the circle. And so imagine there's a three-foot circle around that stitcher. They should never leave that three-foot circle. I know it sounds kind of monotonous, but like, yeah, don't don't make them like do all these go and get things and get more thread and go grab more bags and take the bag and finish it and rub it down and put it in a box. No, just don't let them leave that circle. They don't know there's and of course you know you don't want to be like taskmaster you know slave driver, but in general their job is to sew, and so. Um, yeah, blood pressure, brain surgery. Have the brain mm -hmm. surgeons just the most who have the most critical task. Um, keep that machine going. Keep that um, and let other help other people to do other things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also noticed that you use something called a CVI test. Oh yeah, that's fantastic. Everyone should do it. Okay, I'm just gonna leave it at that because I want to get to one more thing because I know you got to go here. Talk a little bit about your, you know, you, you family is super important to you. Talk about the boundaries that you put in place to make sure you have the time for your family. Yeah, so uh, my wife and I are not on electronics after 6 p.m. And so if you want to solve the problem with, with uh, kids on screens, solve the problem with parents on screens first. Mm -hmm. And this distracting little computer you got in your pocket called an iPhone or whatever smartphone, um, that's the killer of families. And it kills your memory. I mean, there's big studies on this because I, uh, yeah, there are big studies on this about kids who, high schoolers who have smartphones and kids, high schoolers who do not have smartphones. And they're like SAT scores are 200 points higher if they don't have a smartphone. Interesting. And, and it's incredible what is how screen time is stupid is making our people stupid, including me. And so, um, so actually, I bought a light phone. I was reading a book called the The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, mm -hmm. and man, it was the one of the best books I read in like fifteen years. And actually, after I bought the light phone. Um, he, uh, I, I was reading the book and I saw, oh, look, they mentioned the live one. I just got one. Yeah. And the live one, it just does calls and texts and that's it. Has an alarm too. And that's it. No okay. picture. You can't see pictures. There's no internet. There's no social media. And so I check. And then I found out that the most successful people in America, the presidents and CEOs of the fortune 500 companies generally only check their emails once or twice a day. And so I tried to get rid of my smartphone and move to the, to the light phone. And I was forwarding my phone number. I'd leave my camera at work, my, my, my smartphone at work, use it for the maps and camera and stuff like that. And I couldn't make the switch. And so I kind of finally, after a few weeks, went back to the smartphone. And I was down in Mexico on, on vacation in Puerto Escondido. My daughter... And my son were surfing and my daughter couldn't get out past the break. And I was out there up belly high in the water on a sandbar. 
I was doing these cool videos with my iPhone 13, the one terabyte version. Mm -hmm. And I was pushing it out past the break with my left hand. My right hand was clenching my phone because I didn't want to drop it in the water. And her surfboard came back and whacked it out of my hand. Mm. And that was about three months ago. Best thing ever happened to me. One of the best things ever happened to me. So I said, you know what? That's awesome. I miss my phone, but I'm going to the light phone. And mm -hmm. my memory has come back. My, uh, I, I, I memorize routes to go. I look at my iPad before I go, look at maps, and then I memorize the path. And I miss it sometimes. And I go back and I, I figure it out. And now I memorize how to get places, sequences of numbers. My attention span has returned. Um, I used to, I'm reading old books and I was reading and, and I could read three or four pages at a time of these really old, boring books. It's kind of like sit-ups for your head. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And now I'm reading like 20, 30 pages because my attention span, I'm not just looking at little stories and sports scores and yeah. reels, uh, reels on Instagram and Facebook. And I'm, I'm like, it's all back. And now we're playing games together uh, again, more often we're reading my wife and I talk a lot more. And if I want to lead my family, I've got to show them by example. So I decided to do that for me. Um, I wasn't able to, to stop looking at my stupid phone all the time. Just a little second, five seconds, 10 seconds here and there. What's the weather going to be like tomorrow? Hmm, what was it again? What's, what's the next day going to be like? Yeah. For stupid reasons. So anyway, that's, I got the light phone and I would never go back and I'm really busy. Yeah. And my brother works at Microsoft and he's really busy and he did it a year ago. He made the full switch. He got rid of his phone and he said, Dave, I would never go back. My memory, my family time, I'm not distracted. I'm focused. And so it's been really cool for, for us. Yeah. Very cool. Um, well, about the CBI, I can go on about that a little bit. Okay, sure. Go for it. So my, my CEO coach said, Dave, if you, in order to be a good leader of your company, you have to know, uh, know what people do, not know how to do it, how to do all the programming and stuff on the computer, but you have to know what they do. And then you, you need to know your people and know what they're like. And so he said, I'm going to show you how to do that. So we took this core values index test. And actually a friend of mine later, I found out he, he just retired, but he used to run a $12 billion company, 170 factories around the world. And he used wow. to pretty much lived on a private jet flying around through Europe and then back to the East coast and then back to the West coast. And he said, uh, they use the CBI all the time and it really helps them to become profitable when they acquire a new business. And uh, so what it does is it, it shows you how you contribute best to work and what takes energy from you and what, what gives you energy. And so, for example, there are always four categories in all the tests, but this one, it's, it's accurate 15 years later. It's, it's pretty much what you were 15 years ago. It, it doesn't depend on your, mm. how hungry you are, your sex life, or if you're struggling, it doesn't depend on anything. It's just who you are at your core. And so some people get energy from like doing numbers and keeping track of data and uh, building spreadsheets and they just get, they get energy from it and doesn't even feel like work. 
Um, other people get, it, it drains them. Some people love being around with people. They love, they get energy from being with people, not introvert, extrovert, but they just enjoy being around people. Uh -huh. And, uh, and some people, it sucks the energy out of them. It doesn't mean that they're not, that they don't love people and people don't love them. But if they're around too many strangers or too many people in meetings, like my sister, she has to go lay down in her office for like a half hour alone uh -huh. to recharge after meetings because it just sucks it out of her. Um, solving problems and ideation. Some people hate that. Some people just like, tell me what to do. And other people, they, they, they overthink it. Um, and then there's another category of just like uh, doing things. And they just want to do it. My wife's like that. She just, just wants to do things. And she doesn't care. She's a little lower on the, the innovator part. So she just wants to do it and get it done. That's her thing. Get her done. And I am like, well, let me think about it. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, no, that test is huge for us. So one gal, um, after we took the test, she was in customer service. And I said, Kelly, I noticed that, uh, like, maybe you don't like, like this job. She goes, I hate it. Mm. And I said, well, what do you like about the job doing customer service? She goes, nothing. And I said, well, why did you come to work and do this? She said, well, I had two years experience because I needed the job. And then Saddleback's a cool company. So I, I applied and because it's a cool company, I didn't know what else to do. So I, I was like, well, I know how to do customer service. And she was terrible at it. No one, she gave short answers and was uh -huh. short with people. And so I said, but she was really high. She was really low in the people part of being around people, interacting with strangers. And then the numbers part, the data and all that, she was really high in that one, like strangely high. Uh -huh. So I said, well, what would be your dream job? And she said, okay, don't laugh at me. And I did. But <laughs> she said, I, I enjoy mind numbing tasks. Uh -huh. I enjoy, she said, I enjoy data entry. Like it, it fills me up. Like I really like it. And I feel like I accomplished things when I, uh -huh. she said, give me a stack of papers and an Excel spreadsheet on the computer and just put me in a dark room and I'll just do that all day long. And so, and so what we did was we took everyone else's data entry and reports and all that sort of thing. We gave it all to her. Everyone forwarded it all to her. She organized it, gave them all out. And everyone was like, yes, I don't have to do that stupid report, which would take mm. them like four hours or something like that. She would do it in 30 minutes. Uh -huh. And she was more accurate than everyone. And she like giggled the whole time. <laughs> and so, uh, but if you know, if I, now that I know that about her, oh, she doesn't work for us anymore. But yeah, when I knew that about her, uh, I would say, hey, we have this big thing. We need to analyze all this data and collect all the leather that we bought from tanneries and all these things. Kelly, could you do that for me? Oh, yeah, you bet. Uh -huh. And no one, everyone else was tying their shoes under the table. Like, I don't, don't, don't ask me, you know? Yeah. Uh, other people are great at that, like thrive at sales because they have the CVI for it and they like to get things done through relationships. Um, anyway, it's just kind of a really great. So there's no perfect test, but any test is better than no test. So it kind of gives, starts giving you idea of self-awareness. Uh-huh. Hey, you really don't want me doing that spreadsheet. 
because I'm not going to be very accurate with it. Uh-huh. And I'm probably going to procrastinate, honestly. And so if you know your people, you know who to ask to do those things. But if you hire people that are all like you, well, uh, what he did, he's like, if you like yourself, then people hire people like themselves. And so we looked at the CVIs of everyone and they were just like me. Uh, and, but nobody would get anything done. Everyone gotcha. had a lot of good ideas and there, and we talked and told a lot of jokes and everything, but no one got anything done. And so Larry said, you have to hire people who are different than you. And so look, let's, let's look at these different roles and then let's come up with the CVI that you think that that role would require and then go find someone who matches that CVI. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Very good. No, it was a life changer. Oh yeah, I can absolutely see that. I yeah, I've got that pulled up here. I'm going to make sure I uh, check that out and actually take it. It looks like um, it's it's available to. T- I'm going to go ahead and take it and. Uh, yeah, it's free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, see with that. All right. Well, I know you are very busy. I appreciate your time. Very, uh, very insightful. I took a page of half page of notes here. Um, it's saddlebackleather.com. Thank you again so much for your time today. It's been uh, hugely helpful. And um, yeah, have you back anytime you want to come back. We really appreciate your insight today. Oh, great. Well, I hope someone took something from it and oh, yeah. got something from it. Yeah. I mean, we just, I, have, I have so many, I mean, like the, the coffin, you, uh, you, you designed your own coffin, you live in tents. I mean, all that stuff we could do another three episodes on. So anytime you want to come back. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for the invite. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.